this is very different and he's crying and I want to cry because he's crying and he's doing such a good job of it and oh my heart like I'm as mad as hell and I'm not going to take this anymore so you lie to yourself to be happy there's nothing wrong with that we all do it we all go a little mad sometimes come on one of you nuts has got any guts put a smile on that face you're only as healthy as you feel Listen to me! Listen to you, but what right? Because I have a right to be. I have a voice! Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Pop Culture Case Study. Yeah, let's do it. I'm pumped. Let the healing begin. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Pop Culture Case Study, where we analyze pop culture from a psychological angle, a part of the following films network. And this week, we are taking a look at one of those movies I always meant to watch but never got around to, and that is Whale Rider. We're taking a look at Whale Rider and essentially modernism, like the idea of how difficult it is to transition in certain cultures from these kind of ancient ways to more modern ways. And to do that, we have a brand new guest, um, someone I actually have talked to on Twitter a fair amount, and and then heard her on the War Machine versus Warhorse podcast, Jesse Lauren. So thanks for joining us on the show today. It's my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me, Dave. Yeah, absolutely. So before we kind of jump into the regular part of the show, is there uh, is there any place people can find you or hear you online? Uh, well, you can find me on Twitter um, at search to find you. And I've been working with a few fantastic podcasts. I've worked with Michael on War Machine versus Warhorse. We did the Girl with All the Gifts episode. Uh, in the past, I've worked with uh, great podcasts like Where There's Smoke and the Dependent Independent podcast. And you can find those on Twitter as well. Nice. Awesome. All right. So uh, before I kind of talk about the psychology and all that stuff, do you have a couple movie recommendations for us? Uh, I do. And I think that I was able to kind of blend uh, female... Uh, filmmakers and uh, you know the sense of modernization uh, with my recommendations and with Whale Rider it always makes me want to watch uh, two movies right afterwards and I might as well <laughs> um, but then uh, Mira Nair's The Namesake is one of my absolute favorites I love it so much with Taboo and Cal Penn and Irfan Khan it's just beautiful and amazing and uh, you know that's much more about the Indian culture and transitioning that to American and you know where you find the common ground and where you find the differences. And then um, perhaps not as much modernization in this choice, but Frida. And um, I love that. And I think that's, you know, obviously a female uh, filmmaker, uh, but there's a lot of themes of, you know, why don't you move forward into the future and into technology and the protagonist Frida is kind of like, no, I like my culture. I like where I live and I like my life. I don't see the need for it. And uh, it's beautiful. Julie Tamer is visually stunning. And I just love both of the films. Yeah, awesome. I, I always, I always, she's one of those filmmakers I wish would get some more chances at some at some projects. I, I'm a big Julie Taymor fan. I I think the first time I heard about her was through like kind of the, the theater world when she did. She's the one who kind of created the, the Lion King musical, which is phenomenal, but also right. did, you know, like you mentioned, Frida, but then also did a Shakespearean film based on Titus Andronicus, which is amazing and brutal and vicious. Yes. And, you know, like we talk about, you know, 
we talk about filmmakers and sometimes we have this stereotype in our heads of female filmmakers that they're not as tough or as raw as some of these male filmmakers but you know watch watch that or uh, or watch you know other female filmmakers like uh, uh like Catherine Bigelow like does action films with the best of them so I'm glad you kind of gave a shout out to some some female directors because I don't think we we get enough of that both on this show and kind of in the world of film yeah we've got to stick up you know yeah. All right. Um, so we are going to take a little break. I will talk about modernism from a psychological perspective, and then we'll bring Jesse back to talk about Whale Rider. Shannon, CG, Lauren, and Mel form the Nerds of Prey, a group of ladies bonded by comics, gaming, film, television, and fandom culture. Hang out with them bi-weekly as they dig into the very things that make them loud and proud nerds. Available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and Google Play. Also, check out their Patreon at patreon.com backslash nerds of prey. All right, so welcome back, everybody. It's time for the psychology section. So today we're taking on something a little bit different. We're talking about modernization. And in order to do that psychologically, there's something called modernization theory. So it's used to explain the process of modernization within societies. It refers to a model of transition from a pre-modern or traditional to a more modern society. And this theory originated from the ideas of a German sociologist named Max Weber, um, who lived from 1864 to 1920. And the theory looks at kind of the internal factors of a country or a community while assuming that with assistance quote-unquote traditional countries can be brought to development by the same manner more developed countries have been. So it was really dominant, this theory, in the 1950s and 60s, and then went away, and then there was a comeback kind of after 1990, but remains very controversial, and we'll talk about why it is controversial. So what it does is it's attempting to identify the social variables that contribute to social progress and development of societies, and seeks to explain the process of what they call social evolution. Modernization theory stresses not only the process of change, but also the responses that change brings. It looks at internal dynamics while referring to a social structure and the adaptation of new technology. Now, this theory maintains that traditional Traditional societies will develop as they adopt more modern practices. Proponents of this theory claim that modern states tend to be wealthier and more powerful, and their citizens are freer to enjoy a higher standard of living. Developments such as new technology and the need to update traditional methods in transport, communication, and production make this modernization necessary, or at least preferable, to the status quo. Now, of course, taking that view makes critique of this theory really difficult because it implies that these developments control the limits of human interaction and not the other way around. It also tells us that human agency controls the speed and severity of this modernization. So instead of being dominated by tradition, societies will undergo the process of modernization typically, and they arrive at forms of governance dictated by these abstract principles. Traditional religious beliefs and cultural traits, according to this theory, usually become less important as modernization takes hold. And I think you're starting to see, if you've watched the movie, how this applies and how this is coming from a place of privilege or at least a place of non-traditionalism. A lot of historians link modernization to the process of places becoming more urban and more industrial and the spread of education. In 2007, an author, Kendall, wrote, Urbanization accompanies modernization and the rapid process of industrialization. 
in sociological theory, modernization is linked to this overarching process called rationalization. So when modernization increases in a society, the individual becomes more important, eventually replacing the family or community as the fundamental unit of society. So one offshoot of this is globalization. So globalization is the integration of economic, political, and social culture, and it's related to the spreading of this modernization across borders. Now, things like global trade have grown continuously since Europeans discovered new continents in the early modern period, and it also increased as a result particularly of the Industrial Revolution, and even something as it seems kind of small to us looking back, but in the mid-20th century, we adopted the shipping container, and this brought items and ideas across across borders, across shores. So this, this increased globalization and modernization at the same time. So by 1990, tourist arrivals kind of across borders rose to 456 million and will probably double again uh, by the time that we get the information from 2010 to over 900 million times those borders have been crossed. Communication is another major area that has grown due to modernization. And this is in turn enabled capitalism to spread throughout the world for better or worse. Telephones, television broadcasts, news services, and online service providers have played a, have played a crucial role in this spread of modernization. Now, yes, most of these things we talked about are all positive, but there are negative consequences as well. So this dominant model of global so this dominant model of globalization often will increase the difference or disparity between a society's rich and its poor. In major cities of developing countries, there are pockets where technologies of our modernized world, like things we take for granted, like computers and cell phones and television, they will exist, but right alongside stark poverty. So you might hear modernization theorists say it's positive for everyone, but that's not really true because what has spread along with this modernization is this idea of capitalism. So you may be in a situation where, you know, two blocks down the road, you have every every advantage you can think of, but then, you know, where you are, you'll have this poverty and you'll have this homelessness and you won't be able to to access any of those good things. Okay, so let's talk about the criticism. So all the way back in the 1960s, modernization theory, theory was criticized by a bunch of scholars, including André Gunder Frank uh, and Emmanuel Wallerstein. And in this model, the modernization of society requires basically the, the destruction of the indigenous culture and for it to be replaced by a more westernized one. And you kind of slowly see some of that happening in Whale Rider. So by one definition, modern just refers to right now, to the present, and any society still in existence is therefore modern. Proponents of modernization typically will only view Western society as being, quote-unquote, truly modern and argue that others are primitive or unevolved by comparison. And there's also, I mean, let's let's be real, there's also kind of a segment in there that's about race, um, that's about culture, and it's not just like, oh, they aren't as advanced, let's help them out. There's a certain ideal of, like, we're looking down on people um, who are of a different background than us. So that view sees these unmodernized societies as inferior, even when they have the same standard of living as Western societies. Opponents argue that modernity is independent of culture and can be adapted to any society. The perfect example of this is Japan, but it's cited by both sides. Some see it as proof that a thoroughly modern way of life can exist in a non-Western society. And others argue that Japan has become distinctly more Western as a result of its modernization. The theory of modernization has also been criticized empirically. 
So modernization theorists tend to ex ignore external sources of change in societies. There's, they have this binary between traditional and modern. That's really unhelpful because there's a lot of variables going on. And also the traditional modern societies are linked and often they're interdependent and work together. So modernization doesn't come out as a whole. It's also been accused, and I think rightly so, of being very Eurocentric as the idea of modernization began in Europe with the Industrial Revolution, the French Revolution, uh, and the Revolution of 1848. And it's long been regarded as reaching its most advanced stage in Europe. So when you take a look at that, when you take a look at it started in Europe and proponents of this of this theory say basically Europe does it better than anywhere else, I think we can say it's Eurocentric and too focused on Western culture. So there's an alternative model out there, and it's called the dependency theory. And it came out in the 1950s and argues that the underdevelopment of poor nations in the third world, or what's now called the or what's now called developing countries, derived from systematic imperial and colonial exploitation of raw materials there. So they argue that resources typically flow from poor and underdeveloped places to wealthy places, which enriches the rich people at the expense of the poor people. The central contention of dependency theorists is that poor states are impoverished and rich ones are enriched by the way poor states are integrated into this world system. So this, this dependency model arose from a growing association of mainly people from Latin America and Africa, and it was their reaction against a modernization theory. And they held that all societies actually progress through similar stages of development and that today's underdeveloped areas are in a similar situation to that of today's developed areas at some time in the past. So the task of helping those underdeveloped or emerging areas out of poverty is to accelerate them along the, the common path of society. So as richer nations, we should be investing, we should be transferring technology and integrating them into the world market. So this is all what modernization theory says. But dependency theory rejects this view and argues that underdeveloped countries are not just primitive versions of developed countries, but have a unique culture and features and structures of their own. And importantly, they are in the situation of being the weaker members in a world market economy. So we're not playing, basically what they're saying is we're not playing on an even playing field. So what this should not amount to is that modernity is bad and traditionalism is good, or that traditionalism is bad and modernity is good. It depends on what part of the world you're in, what culture you're a part of. And I think, I think personally, like there is a balance. And I think this movie actually, that's the point it's making, I think. And Jesse and I will talk about this more, of course, when we talk about the movie. But there are many scenes that you kind of see, like you never see the Western world itself, but you're seeing it creep in. You're seeing kind of modern use of technology. You're seeing um, Western music kind of creep into this world. But you're still seeing this very strong sense of traditionalism. And I think the intersection of that tradition and the changing modern world is kind of the, the central point, the central part of the movie that gives us something to fight for, something to fight against, and people to root for. So I think it's a really important theme. All right. So that's it for the psychology section. When we come back, we'll bring back Jesse Lauren to talk about Whale Rider. Hello, I'm Andrew. 
And I'm Bernadette, and we're the AB Film Review. We're a weekly film review and discussion podcast from Perth, Western Australia. We're a married couple who like to spend our Saturday evenings avoiding reality by discussing and often arguing about the latest films and some classics. And getting closer to divorce. Uh, you can find us on the Podbros Network at podbros.com, also on Twitter at AB Film Review, Facebook AB Film Review, and our website abfilmreview.com. That's a lot of ABs. That's it. All right, welcome back, everybody. So now it's time to talk about the movie. So as always, we're going to first start off talking about kind of our history uh, with this movie. I'm trying to remember exactly when this came out, but I remember it getting like so much buzz, like to the point of Oscar buzz, where it was like it was the little independent film that could. And I somehow just kept missing it. And it's something that's come up in my discussions with people about film. Like, oh, have you seen Whale Rider? And I keep keep saying, oh, yeah, I need to see that. I need to see that. So this actually gave me a really great opportunity to do that because the director is directing uh, The Zookeeper's Wife, uh, which comes out later this year. So it was kind of the the perfect pairing for that, I thought. So, But but what about you? What's your history with Whale Rider? Yeah, that's fantastic. It actually came out in 2003. And I want to say that Keisha Kessel, he's got at least the nomination. Wow. Yeah, 03. Bad. And, um, <laughs> you know, she got the nomination. I want to say she was the youngest she must have been uh, person to be nominated <laughs> at that point. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I actually was introduced to this in a, a cultural anthropology through film class that I was taking at Wright State. That sounds amazing. That <laughs> it was. Oh, it was fantastic. I got to see this film and uh, oh, what was it? Um, Children of Heaven. Mm-hmm. And I want to say Monsoon Wedding. You know what I mean? Just right. a bunch of different. Uh, examples of foreign film and cultural anthropology like within the cinematic cinematic themes and uh this was i want to say the second or third movie that we watched and the first few were really sad and depressing and you know had me crying in class and you know trying to discreetly wipe away my tears with a scarf or something and i cried at this one a bunch but i remember just this one really really stuck with me and i immediately went out and purchased a copy. And this is probably a pretty, I don't know, a frequent watch. I'd say that I watch it at least like once every couple of years or so. Nice. Yeah. I mean, I, I feel like this is one I'm going to go back to. Um, I hope it, it was, you know, it was quite of an experience kind of watching it for the first time, especially because now uh, you mentioned the star of this, Keisha Castle Hughes, is now, you know, kind of all grown up and was on uh, Game of Thrones. Game of Thrones. And I was like, yes. oh, and you can like, if you look, you know, like you can see it in there. And, you know, so it was it was interesting to kind of go back and see this actress who I know as an adult and kind of see one of her, I assume one of her first performances, which we'll talk about in acting. But it's I'll just say right now, kind of spoiler alert, this is one of my favorite child performances I've ever seen. I think it's phenomenal and authentic and it's just it's one that you don't usually get. Um so I I really enjoyed it and it's you know there are parts of it that were really funny, there are parts of it that that like you know touch your heart, uh there are parts of it that are that make you angry, you know, uh, for this for this girl. I mean, I think it is kind of it does like run the gamut of emotions throughout this, you know, hour and 40 hour and 50 minute film. It was really impressive to me. Yeah, I completely agree. And if you think about it, it's quite the opposite for me. I'm a Game of Thrones fan hugely, and I didn't know she was going to be on it. So I'm just watching like one of my favorite television shows, and all of a sudden I'm like, oh, my God, it's pie! (laughs) (laughs) Right away. Yeah. Yeah, that was just such a wonderful, like amazing happenstance. 
Um, so let's move to uh, to the direction of this film. Uh, so this is directed by uh, Nikki Caro, um, who also directed uh, McFarland USA last year and North Country with uh, Charlize Theron. And of course, we'll be doing uh, The Zookeeper's Wife later this year. So what did you think of her direction, kind of generally speaking? Well, I, I kind of have a, a thing with direction where if I notice it, it had better be because I notice it for good things. Right. But otherwise, if I don't notice it, that's usually something that speaks to me in and of itself. Like if I don't notice the direction, that means that it's so naturalistic and that the editing's not getting in the way. You know what I mean? That it's clearly uh, very well done. And mm-hmm. I think that that's kind of how I feel about this one mm-hmm. is that uh, Nikki Carl was able to, I feel, uh, present a very phenomenal look at everyday life within this, uh, is it Maori tribe? Mm-hmm. And, uh, not only do you get the, the feeling that it's, you know, every day and we're just kind of like peeking through a window of time, but she also catches this really beautiful cultural ethereal vibe about mm-hmm. everything as well. You know what I mean? So yes. I thought that the direction was absolutely magnificent. Yeah, you bring up that ethereal vibe, and that's actually one of the first things I notice as I'm sitting down to watch this movie. You have this, you have kind of the opening credits that is just all water. Um, and I think we've been trained uh, through movies to either see water as very calming or as very dangerous. And I think she captures both of those things just in this little, like, 25 second introduction about you know, about the history of this tribe and and what this movie is going to be based upon. Like, I think you get that feeling of like, this is important, but this is also where our characters feel the most comfortable. And I thought that was such a great introduction to the film, like before we've met any of these characters and know anything about them. Yeah, quite eloquently as well. And I mean, she even talks about the water providing quiet and calm later Mm -hmm. on in the movie. And um, I definitely think that it set the stage for that as well. Yeah, absolutely. And you brought up this idea of like this really is – although these are important events that are unfolding for the people in this tribe, um, it's still – you still do get that kind of everyday nature. Um, and I thought from a direction standpoint, I thought she did a great job at balancing all of these characters, especially when your main character is is a child and there are many moments where she is – forced or very strongly encouraged to stay silent and stay in the background and to still have us understand that, no, this is who you need to be watching. And even when important things are going on around her, she makes these really important choices to focus on Pi, um, even though all these boys are being trained in these sequences were really it all. The camera always drifts back to her, but we still know what's going on, which is no small feat. No, absolutely. And, uh, you know, it's almost like everything's bubbling under the surface and it's such quiet power, you know, especially from a a child. Like I I was I loved the direction, especially for being this early in her career. I think this was only her her second uh, film that that wasn't a that wasn't a short um, and to have that kind of control over the pacing of this movie, because there's there's also never a moment in this film where I was bored or I was like, okay, what's going to happen next? Let's get to the, let's get to the important stuff. Like even all these conversations between family members, like they, you felt like you were in the room with them. And I think if you don't have that, if you don't have a good director at the helm, this stuff either gets boring or gets a little bit too silly, but it never goes in either of those directions. Oh, totally. And that's a feat. You know, that's probably my number one complaint for films 
in general is bad timing, bad pacing, bad editing. Yep. You know, if it seems like superfluous or like it's gone on just a little bit too long or if I notice that I actually want to get out of my seat, it's like, mm, right. you're not really doing your job. Yeah, exactly. I think the one moment I kind of noticed how good this was from a directorial perspective was there's a scene much later in the film where – you know, her her grandfather is supposed to come to this event, and then you see oh. this moment where he hears the whales that have been beached, and he wanders off to go find them. And they don't go back to that for the longest time. You know, they they go back to her performing and weeping, and that's an amazing scene all on mm-hmm. its own. But I actually, as a viewer, I was like, oh, no, her grandpa's going to die. Like, he's going off. Right. Like, like that. it felt very mystical and just, like, he's hearing this call. And the film goes a very different direction than that. But I was just like, I don't know if I can handle this if, if her grandpa <laughs> dies. And that's the reason he wasn't there. So she can't ever even truly be upset about the fact that he wasn't there when he, you know, when he was supposed to be. And, you know, it, it, be- it built up that suspense of, like, is he going to show up? Is he going to be there when she gets when she gets out of this out of this performance? And I was really impressed by that. Oh, completely. And, you know, you even mentioned, you know, being concerned about whether or not he's going to show up. And in that way, it, it very cleverly brings your attention to the fact that he has walked away. Mm-hmm. You know, he has had that moment where he's heading toward whatever destiny awaits him. So even though something completely different is happening, your mind is still there, but you're allowed, your mind is allowed to be there because it's um, brought to your attention by the very empty chair that she continues to focus on. Yeah. And I I just thought, yeah, no, totally. That scene gets me. And you know, I wasn't going to be able to handle it if he died either. That was (laughs) such a concern. I remember watching it in class and I was like, no, 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 no. Her mom's already (laughs) dead. Her twin brother's dead. That happened right in the beginning. I really can't do this. I can't do another sad, depressing movie. I think, you know, going back to these kind of familial scenes, I just was constantly wowed at how this this film, and we'll talk about this more in the screenplay, but it just doesn't feel written. Like it, it no. feels like these are real, actual conversations. And it helps, of course, that this was based on a novel uh, and the person who wrote the novel also helped write the script. But I was just I was really impressed. And there were many moments where I felt like this could go on longer and I would yeah. I would be totally fine with it. So it must have taken some real skill in the editing room as a director to be like, no, I'm sure there are many like deleted scenes and many kind of extended sequences that she probably had to take out. Um, but I'd much rather have too little than too much. And I thought she did a great job with that, too. All right. So let's move on to the acting. So uh, we brought up Keisha Castle who, Hughes, um, who plays Pi uh, in this film. And I just her performance, I think, more than anything else is the reason I want to watch it again. Because I was mm-hmm. just – I was not prepared. Like I knew that she was <laughs> going to be good and I knew it was going to be a good film usually because when you – when a film is this well thought of, it's actually pretty rare that it's actually – like you watch it and you're like, well, this is terrible. I don't know what people were thinking. Usually there's a reason right. when something is kind of loved across the board. Um, but I was not ready really for the intensity of Keisha Castle Hughes's performance here. Like every single – there's not a moment where it feels like – as an actress, she's acting or putting something on like, right. and some of that may be because she's a young actress and, you know, this may be closer to, to kind of where she's at as, as a person. Like, I'm sure she has a fair amount of history where people have told her she can't do what she wants to do and she's out there doing it. But still, I, every time there's a child performance, like even when child performances are well thought of, like, 
last year when uh when Room came out and everyone lost their mind over Jacob Tremblay, I was mm-hmm. not a fan of that performance. I was like, oh, this is so <laughs> so over the top. I cannot deal with this. But this is like to me, this is the antithesis of that kind of showy performance. Like, there's never a moment. There are lots of moments where you feel like she should be screaming and yelling. But mm-hmm. it wouldn't fit with the character and with that culture, and I like how restrained the performance was. It is so mature, and it is right. so subtle, and it is so genuine. And I feel like it's, you know, it calls upon the very character that she is. You know, she's very clearly going to uh, take on the burden of being a leader to this tribe. You know what I mean? That that takes a lot of uh, maturity and uh, wisdom. You know, and she just right. completely embodied that. And I was so impressed. And I'm usually fairly annoyed by child actors. Mm-hmm. And from the get-go, she just totally impressed me. You know, I, I keep I, – I watched this movie three or four days ago, and I just kind of keep thinking back to this performance. And I actually wish mm-hmm. some adult performers were this <laughs> measured with with their interactions on, on screen. I was just so, so impressed by this. Uh, even the concept of, you know, a lot of the best acting is done in reacting. Mm-hmm. And the fact that she is so silent at times because she's made to be right. and the reactions that you see, you know, it's so it, it's so easy as we see so often to just completely overreact and try to be a ham and steal the spotlight. And right. she doesn't do any of that. And it's so impressive. Yeah. And I think that would be even more tempting as a new actor and a young actor to just kind of act mm-hmm. out in those moments. And and of course, like you always hear like the greatest child uh, performances are due to great editing. So who knows how much of that they had to really like instill in her. But it doesn't feel like that kind of performance. It feels like she was really there for that. I was watching the commentary <laughs> and apparently that that whole scene where she's crying and giving the speech was done in like one kind of split up take. So like two takes. That's incredible. You know what I mean? So it's like when you're talking about, you know, the editing and everything, it's like, I'm sure the editing's clearly phenomenal, but that performance is gold. That's amazing that that happened. And like one, absolutely. Oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) Cause that moment destroyed me. And I was like, this must've been over 25 takes and they found the best moments, but it's so, so haunting and so good. It is. Um, So we should talk about her grandparents, uh, and I'm sure I'm going to butcher some of these names. I apologize in advance. Uh, Oh, boy. Rawiri Paratene, uh, who who plays her grandfather, and Vicky Houghton, uh, who plays her grandmother. I actually really, really love the relationship between these two, and I think has has a lot to say about the kind of culture and the the patriarchal nature and the kind of – I mean, underhanded is the wrong way, but kind of the – the the backdoor way the grandmother has uh, to power in these situations where it's kind of like right. the home, this is my area, so I get to decide what happens here. And I love that she's really the only person who can check him. She's the only one who can really say anything to him. Even the other men in the in the tribe, in the neighborhood are like – will keep their distance when, when he's upset. But uh, – and I think the, the movie – could have gone a lot of different ways in the book, of course, originally could have gone a lot of different ways, but they never take the easy way out with her grandfather. There's about five different moments where I'm like, oh, he's going to melt now. Like it's his granddaughter. He's going to he's going to care. He's going to he's going to apologize. And you don't really get that in the film, like until one of our characters almost dies. That's right. that's when he finally kind of sees the error of his ways. Um, so I loved, I really liked his performance, although he's, he's a hard character to love during the film, 
but kind of after and thinking about the entire arc of that character and his performance, just phenomenal. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, from Pi's perspective, it, he is a hard character to love, but you want to love him because she loves and reveres him so much. Right. And it's it's really interesting. And, you know, Nikki Caro had said that the Maori women lead from behind. Right. So, you know, when, when you're speaking of uh, the grandmother, that's exactly what she does. You know, it's almost like placing a hand in the palm, like or placing your hand on the small of someone's back and just kind of leading them. It's like the person may be standing in front of you, but you're leading. Right. And that's definitely what she does. And I, I really enjoyed their dynamic. And I mean, her all her little jokes about like, maybe this time we'll get divorced. And you know what right, I mean? Right. Like, and even from the beginning of the film, when she's, you know, cradling her granddaughter and tells her, mm. you know, you want me to divorce him? Just say the word. Like, that's like one yeah. of the first things she says to her granddaughter. And that, that theme kind of keeps coming up is like, if you keep pushing this, this is part of the power I have. Like, I can make your life really miserable because I'm the only one who will say these things to you. And I love it. It's it's said with a little bit of cheek, but at the right. same time, it's like, no, but look in my eyes. No, but really. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. <laughs> but really. <laughs> yeah. Like, I do have this power over you. <laughs> Don't right. forget it. Don't forget. Like, I'll let you pretend you're powerful, but really, it's all me. And yeah. I loved it. I, yeah. I thought she was great. I thought he was great. Like, just phenomenal performances. Very moving. And mm. his stoic. His, uh, good. <laughs> his stoicism. Like, I don't know. It's just... It's like watching a mountain move. Yeah. I mean, there's so many moments as you're watching his performance that as the audience, you're like, but it's your granddaughter. Come on. Like, I know. just make this exception. But you also, at a certain level, especially after you finish them, you understand, even if you don't agree, you understand why he's doing what he's doing. Like, if you look at that kind of true belief and mm-hmm. and what he really thinks is, he is really doing what he thinks is best for all of the people who live there. Like in his mind, he is doing the right thing and he's making the sacrifices that include his own granddaughter, which in a weird way is kind of impressive, but it's still like, but come on, like, look at this girl. She's right there. <laughs> and perfect. Right. And uh, what what I find interesting is that's, I think, a really big reason why Pi respects him so much. Right. You know what I mean? So it's like, it's just this, ah. Uh, like if only these things could collide and right. thankfully they do at the end yeah finally yes absolutely yeah very very finally it's like okay right. so it took her you know having to basically almost die right and oh fine like, sure i guess yeah. so yes um <laughs> yeah the only other two characters of note for me really um are her uncle and i guess his uncle's girlfriend uh fiance uh but that's she's played by uh rachel house who actually got a lot of publicity this year because she was in uh, Hunt for the Wilder People, which, of course, got, you know, a lot of great reviews. And she appeared to kind of come out of nowhere. So the second she appeared on screen, I was like, oh, I, I know oh, her. Like, her. This is fantastic. And I thought yeah. their interactions were also like it was just I think if it goes any further, it becomes too silly and too like almost like a sitcom, like their interactions, because they're very funny. They're very gregarious. There's all these moments where he's telling his brother, oh, you always end up with the pretty girls. And she kind of slaps him on the shoulder. But that stuff all felt really authentic. And I love how they the two of them kind of kind of jab at each other 
but it never feels vicious. It never feels vindictive. It's like that's just sometimes how couples are. Like we know our own inadequacies and we know what we're good at and what we're bad at. And you kind of get to needle each other. Like that kind of goes with, you know, these long-term relationships. So that also felt really authentic to me. Oh, I agree. You know, I feel as though it's the uh, type of companionship that you get from just choosing someone. Mm -hmm. Like I like you. I choose you. Right. Let's make a go of it in life, which we don't see very often, especially nowadays. Yeah. And uh, I, I really enjoyed their dynamic. And I agree, it could have gotten very sitcom-y and cartoony. Uh, but I want to uh, say the reverence that, that both of the characters have for the culture actually kind of grounds them a little bit. So they kind of can mm. be the comic relief. And at the same time, you know, it almost just shows, it goes to show not just one personality exists within this very specific culture. Yeah, I mean, I think that scene where he starts teaching Pi some of oh. the things that her grandfather won't is actually a really moving and powerful scene that kind of comes out of nowhere and feels like because as at that point you're like oh well these are the fun that's the funny uncle okay fine but then you realize like no he actually cares like just right. as much as everyone else he just kind of expresses himself differently and he's not you know so like embroiled in the history, but it's still really important to him. And I think that really comes across. The thing I keep noticing about this movie is there's not really a weak link as far as the actors. Most movies, when we cover them, no. there's always at least one person that kind of stands out like, oh, that could have been better. But even her kind of absentee father, like that stuff really works. And these these kind of subplots with the the fathers of these boys who are there for them, but not there for them when they really need them like that, again, all feels very authentic and real. Yeah, I completely agree. You know, her father, um, I had picked him out in his performance in Blow, and I had not seen him in anything. Oh, that's right. Uh, yeah. Yeah, outside of that. And Cliff Curtis, I yep. believe is his name. Yep. And uh, so, yeah, when I watched Well Rider and saw him pop up, I was like, oh, hey, it's Pablo Escobar. And then I was like, oh, this is very different. <laughs> this is not Pablo Escobar at all. Yeah. <laughs> no, this is very different. And he's crying. And I want to cry because he's crying and he's doing such a good job of it. And oh, my heart. Like, yeah. And, you know, just the dynamic between her and her father, you know, and the concept of an absentee father. It's like you never actually see the character of Pi um, be mad at him about that. Right. You know, it's like his world basically crashes down all around him when his wife and one of his children dies. And the entire culture, basically, like all of his family to say, OK, you need to leave now and deal with this really horrible thing that happened. We'll take care of reality. Mm -hmm. And. I really loved that, and I thought that his performance was fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. I think that that kind of transition us, transitions us perfectly to to the writing because that's one of the things that really stood out to me is there's – with all these characters, with the father, with the grandfather, with the uncle, there's there's ample opportunity to create a villain of this movie. And they never do mm -hmm. it, which I really appreciate because it'd be easy for like, oh, the dad left to go, you know, go off to Germany or do whatever he has to do. And you could have had scenes with Pi being really upset and crying about this or writing letters to him. But you never really yeah. get those moments. And even with the grandfather, like we've mentioned a couple times, we understand his reasoning. We get it. And there's so many moments where you could just be like, oh, well, that's the bad guy. And we they never take the easy way out. Oh, completely. You know, and you know, to the credit of the writing, you know, just using the raw emotion and very simplistic understanding of a child in her saying, you know, it's not his fault. I'm a girl. It's yeah. like that's so brilliant and simple and beautiful. 
Yep. Because it's not his fault. It's not her fault. You know what I mean? It's like right. it, it causes stress and strain and you wish it was different, but it's nobody's fault. And you, you had spoken about how naturalistic everything seemed. And that speaks to the writing as well. Yeah. The other thing I was thinking is that, you know, we talk about the villain of the piece of the enemy. It all, they also could have easily made the other boys the villain in this movie. Yeah. And I thought that's the route they were going to go until one of the boys starts kind of helping train her you know, kind of outside outside of this outside of this building where the where she's not allowed in, and I really liked that that moment. And I think the other thing that that ends up bringing up is it creates stakes for the film because because of the fact that he does this, he's not allowed on the boat. So at first right. I was like, oh well, she's going to get in trouble, but he's not going to get punished because he's a boy. And they don't do that at all. Like there is there is a real price that this kid pays for kind of bridging the gap between the genders in this little moment. Oh, absolutely. The, yeah, Hemi, right, was the yeah. little boy. And he was great, too. Yep. Like, I thought he did a really good job. And uh, I don't believe that he had done any acting prior. What a wonderful message for a film to have about bringing people together in community and mm -hmm. culture is to not villainize any one specific aspect. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. Uh, and it's just one more example of this, of this movie and this book kind of not taking the easy way out. Uh, and I think there's, I also think the script does a great job at balancing something at, at a story being something that brings us all together and something we can all understand and also bringing in the culture. There's all these scenes of, you know, them calling to the ancestors and actually the scenes with the whales, but we're so, we're so bonded to these characters by the time any of that stuff really comes up that mm -hmm. I think we, even if you are not part of that culture and don't know anything about that culture, all of it still feels like, oh, I understand this now because I've been with these people for the last, you know, 70 or 80 minutes. Yeah, it's so welcoming. Right. You know, it's such a welcoming window into a world that a lot of people don't experience or know of. And also, you know, we we talked a little bit about gender, and that was like kind of the first place I thought of going with with the theme, uh, because that is, I think, the most obvious theme is the the kind of specific gender roles in this culture. One thing I really liked is that introduction we talked about with the the kind of ocean opening. I think they they give you a little faint at the beginning of this movie because they tell this story about you know what they're trying you know what they're trying to find. They're trying to find like the next essentially the next male heir. Um, so you think like, oh, what's, right. what's this story really about? And then all of a sudden it's, and they say, oh, there's twins. You're like, oh, it's going to be about her dealing with the fact that she's not this heir and her brother is. Not. And then like within a minute, they, they pull the rug out from under you. So I think in a lot of ways, you're in a similar position as this family is. They think they're going to get something. And then all of a sudden that is yanked away from them and they have to figure out where to go from there. Yeah. Fantastic. Absolutely. And, you know, to go back to the writing as well or stay with the writing. But, you know, characterization is such a strong part of telling a story. And I feel as though the character of Pi and her quiet calm, her wisdom, I mean, that in and of itself almost opens up the option to not to have a, a story come together with no particular bad point. Because really, had her attitude been weaker... Mm -hmm. then she could have made anybody or any specific issue, uh, you know, the bad guy. Yeah. Like, oh, you know, my, my, my grandfather hates me, so I'm going to be sad about it. Oh, my dad's gone and he's starting a new family, so I'm going to be sad about it. But in instead, she just has this beautiful, calm wisdom 
and accepts everything. Right. And I think that's interesting because it, I think that brings her and her grandfather, like from a, from a distant perspective, it brings them together. I think they have a lot in common. And I think, completely. you know, I think it's, it's really interesting if he could see past the gender and see past the, the kind of history of what he's expected to do. The two of them are like two peas in a pod. And there's, she's also like, even though there are moments when she's emotional, mainly because she is a child, she's actually right. really stoic. And accepts all these bad things that are constantly occurring in her life with, you know, she puts on her strong face and she believes in people. There's there's a scene where, you know, she saves a seat for him and her grandmother says, oh, he might get held up. And she just she says, no, he'll be here. Like she yeah. just she, and he never said he would. He never agreed to it. But she believes in the people that surround her, which is really sweet and really uh, kind of amazing to watch. And holding on to that positivity, and it may seem naive, but in, but ultimately, it's actually much more enlightened. I love that. And, you know, you brought up how she's stoic, and she is, almost more so than him. It's like that lovely line that he has in Maori where he says, you know, wise leader, like, forgive me, I am a – what does he say? I am just a fledgling, like, new to flight. Yeah, that's right. Or something – you know what I mean? It's like it, – and it just killed me. Yeah, this and... is a movie that really ups the ante with every emotional scene. Like you feel like, oh, well, that's going to be the most I cry. And then, <laughs> and then like 20 minutes later, you're like, oh, okay, I was wrong. There's more. <laughs> like, oh, there's this one beautiful, you know what I mean? It's like you're brought from this amazing scene where she's riding on the back of a whale after like turning it around and saving it. And she gets, you know, blown away in the water and you're so scared for her and you're watching everybody cry and – they're mourning and chanting and it's amazing. And there's all that emotion. And then you find out that she's okay. And you're like, all right, all right, everything's fine. And then he says that simple, beautiful, amazing line, just sitting by her bedside. And yep. I'm like, nope, never mind. That's it. <laughs> nope. There it is. Yeah, yep. absolutely. Yep. All right. There's more. So briefly, let's talk about the production value. Obviously this isn't a, a movie that's focused so much on production value, but I will say this, there was never, just like we talked about the authenticity uh, it's not a word. Uh, the authentic nature. It's almost, a word. <laughs> it's almost there. Authenticity. <laughs> that's what I was looking for. There the authenticity go. of these scenes with the family is there, but a part of that are these buildings where all these scenes are housed. There's not mm. a single moment where I feel like, oh, well, that's a set or that's constructed just for this. Like everything feels very lived in. Like when it, even when you're just talking about like the the serving where they're using when they eat or um, or the kind of the tools they're using when they're training these boys all and granted I'm not from this area I don't know much about the Maori culture but to me as an outsider like this all felt very real and very authentic and that stuff all worked and I think if it doesn't then this movie has a big problem because if it feels false, then I think, I think you brought up earlier that you watch this in a anthropology course. And this really mm -hmm. does feel like that where you are an observer, not so much a participant, but you're just watching this and kind of seeing what this world is like. And I think it really comes through. Oh, exactly. And the way that the landscape and props are related to you know what I mean it's like mm -hmm. no one ever regarded anything like oh I need to pick this up now you know what I mean it's like <laughs> everything seemed a very very like you said natural yeah and production value similar to directions like if I notice it you're maybe doing something a little wrong right and you know <laughs> I never noticed everything just felt right yep yeah you know so 
and this was a very low budget. It was like six million. Yeah, that's yeah. And you know, it's it's so funny to talk about film budgets because that sounds like to normal people <laughs> that sounds like a lot of money, and it is. But when it comes right. to films, I mean, we we're making movies now that cost you know two three hundred million dollars to produce, and that's without you know advertising. That's just the actual film production budget. So six million is like, I mean, it's like in the movie world, that's like the change in your couch. So it's right. you know to make a movie this powerful and this and this real. For that that low cost, I mean, it really speaks to the direction, the acting, the writing, the production value, all these things coming together to make to make a film that feels like you're there with them, which I think is it speaks to kind of the power of film. Like, you know, you could you could hear about this and you wouldn't feel it. But if you can but if you can see it like in this, I think you really do feel what it's like to be a part of this culture as much as we can. Oh, absolutely. I agree. And, you know, when you think about the production value as well, you know, it's like they had all of those whales that they actually, you know, those were partially real whales and Mm -hmm. some of them were uh, mechanic and CGI. But for the most part, there were like whale handlers on set, I assume. You you know what I mean? It's like think about the enormity of dealing with such a majestic animal and making sure that everything went right and you didn't hurt anybody. You know, it's just it's mind boggling to think that was done on such a small budget. So I think the production value speaks for itself. Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk about our favorite scenes. What's one of your favorite scenes from whale rider? Oh man. (laughs) The whole movie, movie? all of it. Yeah. The the whole movie. Let's just, and, and, um, no, the ones that stick out to me are probably pie and her father talking in the canoe. Oh yeah. I'm glad you brought that up because you, you mentioned that earlier, the scene with her father crying. Uh, and I just thought like, and that is another thing I wasn't prepared for. Cause I knew this was going to be a very much a, a movie that was divided by gender. So to see a father open up to his daughter about his own relationship with his father uh, and talk about right. how, how kind of how hard it is to, to be his son. And you could tell he really respects him, but also you can see that they, you know, they don't quite see eye to eye and that he's much more modern than than his father is. And I thought mm-hmm. Cliff Curtis's performance in that moment was pretty, pretty amazing because he's actually not in this movie very much. But that yeah. scene really hits home. And it's essentially right before he leaves. Um, so that's like, oh, it's it's not only pies, but our goodbye to this character. And it really works. Oh, it hits hard. And I think one of the reasons why, too, is the, you know, we're talking about gender and everything, but there's a bit of a role reversal in almost like the parent-child relationship because he initially goes out to comfort her. Right. And before you know it, you know, she's talking about how he feels and how it must be hard for him. And she's comforting him as he cries. Right. You know, sitting there very proudly Mm -hmm. to be discussing this with, you know, her father and just the image of that small girl in that huge canoe. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. That's like not being used. It, it was just such a beautiful uh, metaphor and visual. It's like this canoe that's not ready to, it's not seaworthy. And right. she's not even supposed to be in it or taking part in anything <laughs> to have, you know, having to do with it. And she just like pops right in there with a little blanket and cries alone. Yeah. And it's just, uh it hit. It, it's it's powerful. I love it, and it's not like smack you in the face powerful. 
Right. It just it, it sneaks up on you. Yeah, and there's also a really interesting uh, dialogue moment in there where he's kind of talking about what my father doesn't understand is the difference between who I am and who I was supposedly meant to be. Uh, oh. And I think that ties in – I mean it's it's an interesting discussion no matter what. I think I think every son, every daughter, every child has been through this with their parent where they have some expectation and you don't meet it or even if what you become is – you know, seen as better than that expectation. But if you're not who you were supposedly meant to be, it's really difficult for the parent and for the child. So I love that moment. But then if you take it from Pi's perspective, where she, I think, deep down feels like I was meant to be this leader and I'm not being allowed because he doesn't think I'm meant to be that. And he's the one with the power. So like, I think that that scene actually kind of encapsulates everything that's going on for Pi in this like microcosm. Oh, completely. And even when she mentions like, but it was supposed to be my brother. Right. And he looks at her and says, maybe not. Right. You know what I mean? It's like maybe this big, huge thing that he's said has been like the tragedy of, you know, everything going forward. It's like, maybe not, maybe he wasn't, maybe it was meant to be you. Maybe it wasn't meant to be anybody. You know, it's just, it, I love that scene. Yeah. <laughs> That's definitely one of my favorites. Uh, one of my favorite scenes, uh, we already talked about the kind of practice sequence with the uncle, which I just adore. Like I, that was one of those scenes I wanted to go on even longer. Um, but there's this, a particular scene where her grandfather is kind of bereft and doesn't know what to do. And he calls to the ancient ones. And I love <gasps> that <sighs> that the director takes the time in that moment to just show that pain. And that's something that could have been brushed over and could have been just done in in dialogue, like something put over, like him just looking very sad. But to keep that that kind of cultural piece there and then to see there's there's a moment there where it would be really easy for us and Pi to just ignore this moment. But I love that she cares about and loves her grandfather so much that she realizes, like, maybe he needs my help. And decides to mm-hmm. kind of join in instead of – and that's that's one of those moments where the movie could have made him a villain but instead is focused on bringing everyone together. And it's and it's a scene with very little dialogue but it doesn't need it. Like you just get that emotion and I think his performance especially, I think that is his shining moment. It's that and the very last sequence that you talked about. Um, after she almost dies, um, mm. those two moments, I think, and it's always, we talked about her performance, how it's so impressive because it's not a showy performance. And it's the same thing here. It's a very, very restrained, very restricted, um, very like dialogue light moment that really, it gets us to care about him again when very, when through most of the movie, we're like, Oh, I'm so over this guy. Just listen to your granddaughter, listen <laughs> to your wife and it'll be fine. But you really see there like how much he cares and how much he is kind of adrift in that moment. Oh, absolutely. And that's interesting because one of my other favorite scenes is actually the one that's directly in front of that. And that is the, him throwing the whale's tooth oh. into the water and, you know, the kids are all clamoring for it and everything. And when they come up and he says, who has it? And they say, well, I almost did. And then it's like you see it all dawn on him that right. almost everything he knew and thought was wrong. Yeah. And like, you know what I mean? Like the music just kind of swells up and they go to leave and it's like, oh, my God. Like everything that's like leading up to that beautiful scene where he's just, you know, alone with himself and chanting, you mm. know, just 
seeking uh, guidance from the ancient ones and everything. And then Keisha Castle Hughes and her joining him with those tears in her eyes. And it's like, Oh God. So, yeah. you know, just that dawning. Yeah. Is it's amazing. The The whole movie, it's, it's so impressive because it is a very emotional movie as we've kind of talked about a lot here, but it's not, it's not overly sentimental and it's no. not melodramatic. And it would be it's I, not heavy. Right. Yeah, exactly. And I think you you kind of said it right when you were talking about that scene in the boat is that it sneaks up on you. These mm. moments, just like in life, <laughs> these emotional <laughs> moments do sneak up on you. And you as you're watching it, you kind of realize, oh, that's why I'm feeling this way. I get how we got here. But you are not prepared for those mm. for those emotional moments. And I think the only other scene I want to bring up in any more detail is the the scene of of her speech. Um, where she yes. kind of has that realization that her grandfather is not there. And it's it's another one of those moments that it would have been really easy to cut. Like not the whole scene, but it really would have been easy to cut on her crying and have her not complete the speech. But I love that we show her determination in that moment. Is that, yes, she is probably the saddest she has ever been in that moment. Like she has been disappointed by the person she respects most in the world. But she perseveres and she gets through this speech and she finishes. Even even though she's crying through the whole thing, there is not a single bone in her body that is going to let her give up. And I love that kind of moment of empowerment for her. Oh, absolutely. And it's leading from behind again with her nanny. Yeah. You know, she just kind of looks up at her and says, like, go on, bub. Like, yeah. go on, do it. You know what I mean? It's just, oh. Yeah. It's immaculate. It's such a beautiful scene. I feel like that's kind of the obvious favorite of the film because the performance is just so magnificent yeah yeah i mean i think that was the moment where i was like okay this might be the best child performance i've ever seen like that Mm -hmm. was i mean everything else was so good but it all leads to this crescendo in that in that speech and it does not falter for a second and that would be a uh, a scene that would be very easy to be melodramatic and to have us go yeah. like, oh, we're going over the top now. And it was never – it never got to that level. It was, again, like very authentic and very real and very natural. Totally. And you never for a minute think she's faking it. You never for a minute think that, oh, this is a child acting. Right. It's like you're just so engrossed in watching this thing and probably crying if you have any soul. Yeah, you know I, mean, I mean, I would just, hope so, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Unless you never cry at movies. There are some people I know like that who, you know, mm-hmm. will feel the emotion but just don't tear up. That's not their thing. Uh, but if right. you are a person who cries at movies, like this is – this will probably do it to you. Like this is yeah. – Yeah. But again, it's not heavy. It's it's just – it's a good cry. Yeah. I mean it's it's interesting. Although there are lots of heavy topics in this movie, the movie itself feels – it's very easy to watch. It's very light in that way. Like there's, you know, sometimes there's, there's great movies out there that you're like, okay, I got to sit down to watch this. Like I got to really hunker down and I got to focus now. Okay. I'm ready. I have to be in the right mood for this. And this isn't one of those movies. I was surprised at how, how, how quickly the movie felt like it was going and it, it doesn't drag and it doesn't feel like it's dragging out these emotional moments. I think it does a really good job at, I think the director really knows when to pick up and move on and when to transfer and when to stay. Uh, and that's that's not nothing. There's a lot of directors, a lot of great directors who linger just a little bit too long. And she's definitely not one of those. Yeah, it's that pacing. And it's done extremely well with this. Yeah, absolutely. So let's jump into the theme. So basically the theme is, you know, like kind of looking at how people of different cultures or even if of our own cultures have to move from these kind of old traditions to more modern versions of these traditions. So how did you how did you see the theme playing out in the movie on this watch? 
Well, I mean, the theme, I, I thought it was really, really interesting to watch this tribe exist in a world that no longer specifically revered the mm. traditions. Right. Um, I felt like one of the most interesting moments of that uh, or examples of that was when uh, Jaime's dad came in to mm. uh, watch him when they were, when, when he was teaching him uh, all of the fighting. Right. And, you know, he, there's that traditional uh, Maori greeting where you, you kind of, push your nose up against the other person mm -hmm. and you see Coral do it very quickly. Like, mm -hmm. I don't care for you. I know that you're right. somebody who doesn't actually respect our traditions. And he like leaves very early on. And Jaime, Jaime just kind of goes like, you know, what are you, where are you going? We're not done. He's like, well, you did your bit. And then this weird car pulls up with this music blaring and mm -hmm. you know what I mean? So it's, yeah. and even the fact that her father goes off to Germany and, uh, develops a relationship with somebody outside of his culture. You know, right. it's the themes of modern society, a society that no longer completely respects or integrates the traditions. Are, it feels like they're almost skirting the outside of the film right. because we're so immersed in the culture with Pi and Koro. Yeah. And it, if anything, it almost feels like to me a love song for tradition. I love, I, I love that. You know what I mean? I, I, it almost makes me mourn the fact that we're losing so much of that tradition. Right. I think that is, I mean, I think that's why to me, the scene that speaks most to what we're talking about is that last sequence um, with her grandfather, where he's kind of talking about, you know, you know, aid me ancestors. Like I'm, I'm just mm. a fledgling. I think yeah. it's, it's, it's an interesting, cause I think, I don't think the movie works if the arc becomes, okay, well, let's leave all tradition behind and she's our leader <laughs> now because that's the best we got. I don't think, right. I don't think the movie works. And I love that it is like this amalgamation of old tradition and modern ideals in this character of the grandfather where now because of everything he's seen, he's now open to the idea of things changing. It's not as if he's going to like the next day be like, okay, throw out, chuck out all the old traditions. We're, we're done with that. <laughs> we're moving into modern times, but it is this inching forward. You talked about like watching a mountain move. And I think mm -hmm. that last scene with him is, is the mountain finally inching forward kind of into the future, you know, with, with his granddaughter. And I think that's why it's so moving. I think if we have a big, a big change, then it that authenticity goes out the window and it it doesn't feel real. But because it's this small incremental change and he is so emotional about it and is finally kind of opening up his heart and feeling for his granddaughter in that moment and for his people instead of feeling for his people at to the detriment of his relationship with his granddaughter. He's kind of combining all these things into one and that's the way he has to move forward. Right. It's the bringing together of the two that finally, you know, gives us our happy ending. Mm -hmm. And I just absolutely love that. You're com I, the amalgamation. I, I think that's great. Like, I, I completely agree. Yeah. I mean, I think I think it's it, it was not where this movie is definitely not what I expected it to be uh, in a lot of ways. And I think that last scene really hammered it home. that This isn't going to be a movie that has a huge, bombastic, happy ending. It's right. happier. 
than most <laughs> of the rest of the film is, but it's yeah. it's real in that way that it it's not like, oh, and then we do a complete 180 and everything is fine. Like I'm sure she and her grandfather are still going to butt heads as they move forward because as he says, this is all new for him and he doesn't really know where he's headed right now and i think you know it'd be really interesting i don't know if you know the writer wrote more about about these characters it'd be interesting to see where their relationship goes because i think he definitely now does have a newfound respect for her um but it's not as if he's going to be like oh well then you know you lead the way always i don't know anything <laughs> that's definitely right. not his style so i i think the best movies um they you have this moment where you're like, I'd like to see what happened before and I'd like to see what happened after. And I think you definitely get that with these characters. Oh, I agree. Absolutely. All right, cool. Um, so this is a movie I'm glad I finally got a chance to see. And I, I wanted to thank you for coming on to talk about it. Uh, but the last yeah, thing, you. the last thing we have to cover is the new movie coming out. So uh, this director is also directing the zookeeper's wife, um, which I have up right here, which stars Jessica Chastain and Daniel Bruhl. Um, so this is Zookeeper's Wife tells the account of keepers of the Warsaw Zoo who helped save hundreds of people and animals during the German invasion. So are you excited about seeing this movie? I am extremely excited about it. Great. I'm also a little apprehensive. Mm -hmm. I feel like Jessica Chastain has kind of been throwing herself at whatever sticks lately. <laughs> And a little bit. Yeah. she can be, she can be amazing, Yes, but she can also be Crimson Peak. Oh, so it's like breaking my heart. <laughs> <laughs> One of my favorite movies no. of the last year. <laughs> oh no, no, no. Don't get me wrong. I loved it. But at the same time, it's like, Ooh, girl, tone it down. But it was over the top. Yeah, like, definitely. You know what it I mean? was, there was not like, a lot of subtlety in that performance. I will agree with you. No, there. no, not so much, <laughs> but no, I, I think that she's fantastic. And, you know, obviously, with uh, I I'm excited to see what uh, Nikki Caro is going to do. Um, yeah. It looks visually stunning. Yes. And I feel as though it's a message that desperately, you know, that this world needs right now. Help people. It's like, let's, yeah. <laughs> yeah. How about help people? How about like, no matter what their background is or how different they are from you, just like love and help people. Right. That'd be great. <laughs> yeah, this is one of those movies that I was sold based on the cast. Like, I really like Jessica Chastain, and I really think Daniel Bruhl is an underappreciated actor, and I think he'll make a fantastic villain uh, in this mm -hmm. film. But if you just, you know, if you read that plot synopsis, I'd be like, oh, okay, so it's Schindler's List in a zoo. That's what we're doing? Okay, I, I guess. <laughs> you know, because that's essentially, you know, same kind oh, totally. of story, right? Um, yeah. But now that I've seen, uh, now that I've seen Whale Rider, I'm even more excited because I know that I, I love the director or at least this this one film that I've seen of hers so I'm at least interested to see what she's going to do and she's one of those uh, one of those directors that is definitely she's not like the Woody Allen type who does a, a movie every year uh, right you know like, she seems to be selective yeah it's like every two or three years she'll do another movie she'll get back out there so I'm really excited to see this and like you said like just visually like just seeing this trailer I was like Oh my God, this look, if nothing else, this looks incredible. And, you know, when you boil everything down, film is a visual medium. So that's right. an important piece. Like that's not the only piece, but I, I wouldn't want to go see a movie that had great characters and a great script and had terrible filmmaking. 
you know, then that's, oh, that's true. even more depressing. You're like, oh, we were so close. Just get someone <laughs> capable behind the camera and this would have been a classic. Uh, but this one, at least from the trailer, we can see that it, that it looks very professional and, we we know at least from watching Whale Rider that she seems to be very good at knowing when to pull back and knowing when to stay there. And I think in a movie that is suspenseful, like The Zookeeper's Wife looks like it will be, that is going to be a necessity. Yeah, let's hope a studio or producers mm. don't step in and go, hey, we need this a little bit. You yeah, know we I mean? need another Clearly shot with a tiger. A, let's go back to this. Right, yes. right. Clearly this is going to be a much larger budget than Whale Rider. I but would I hope so, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but I think it looks phenomenal. Um, it's definitely one that I'm going to see in theaters. Nice. Me too. Not so. that that means anything because I see pretty much every major release that comes out, but I will be seeing this in the theaters too. But I'm actually looking see, forward to for this me. one. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, that's a big thing for me. If I'm going to spend my money and go to the theater, it's going to be a movie I'm really excited about. So Nice. Awesome. All right. Uh, so before you take off, why don't you tell people one more time how to contact you online? Uh, you can reach me on Twitter at search to find you. And just if you ever want to chat about movies, I mean, just throw some information my way and I will always respond. I'm always down and I'm always game. So. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening to another episode of Pop Culture Case Study. So if you want to connect with the show, there's a bunch of ways you can do that. Follow me on Twitter at PCK Study. Or if you really want to go the extra mile and do something awesomely nice for me, you can go to patreon.com slash study, and there you can donate on a per episode basis also if you want some other great movie podcasts you should check out followingfilms.com which is our podcast network which also features great shows like the true romance film podcast and war machine versus warhorse so next time you hear me we will be doing an episode on the zookeeper's wife which is of course nikki caro's next film coming out so not sure who's going to be doing that episode with me because I don't think that's playing in the backwoods of Kentucky. So I'll have to find someone else, but that's okay. Uh, so until next time, I will be here diagnosing your favorites and judging you for what you watch. Absolutely. It's the worst. And it's like, you know, it's even worse than that is that it's not even don't be an asshole. It's quite literally don't be an asshole on me. Just a fucking time you can't be gone, you ass.